Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, May 4th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Elliot, uh, Erica, and I think we're missing Tiffany today. And Gabby. And Gabby. Yes. (laughs) Hello, everyone. (laughs) Hello. Hi. I was on a different window there. I couldn't see the names. (laughs) Those are get jumbled up. All right. Today... We are talking about illicit cures in black market medicine. So don't try this at home. That is the message of our show today. We want to be very clear <laughs> that we are not uh, suggesting anything um, or you know endorsing uh, the use of anything illicit, just to get that out of the way. Uh, but I think we can be adults and have a conversation about things that exist in the world. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of drugs that have been made illegal throughout history uh, have been and are being found uh, to be helpful for their therapeutic potential or even for their potential as cures for some diseases. Um, a lot of drugs were made illegal by their, you know, for their potential for abuse originally, but also um, for other reasons like, for instance, racism or, you know, uh, closed-mindedness, things like that, uh, lack of research, I guess, understanding. Um, so that has also happened. But uh, we find ourselves in a place where medically, we are relying largely on big pharma and legal drugs, uh, which are in and of themselves quite dangerous. Um, and uh, illegal drugs, while some of them I think personally should be, there are others that I think should not be for various reasons, but we find that these things are, are therapeutic. So we're, we're in an interesting place where um, the government is having to admit that yes, certain things should be studied and then doling out you know licenses to study those things and kind of see how it goes. Um, so it's an interesting place in, in time. And of course, it's a little bit touchy to talk about because the law is the law, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I said, we want to be very clear that we are not making any suggestions. We're just talking about this. Um, yep. so I don't know the, the first one, I mean, aside from some of the obvious ones, you know, like, uh, cannabis, I guess is the main one that's kind of talked about as having medicinal applications. Uh, I'm interested in some of these ones, you know, the, uh, the state of uh, research around things like MDMA, uh, mm-hmm. MAPS uh, is uh, an organization, MAPS, that studies, uh, that researches psychedelics in their application, and they have got recently gotten licensed, I need to find this reference, but um, to, to do studies on MDMA applied to PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very interesting, because obviously PTSD is a huge problem, um, you know, and most people... I think who go the route of self-destruction with PTSD or end up with things like opiates or severe alcoholism or things like that. Mm-hmm. And if there are ways or that benzos. we can bring them, or benzos, yep. Mm-hmm. And if there's ways we can bring them back from that, you know, um, we should be looking into that. But I think, especially the, the soldiers, I think get left kind of by the wayside. Um, but you know, there's a lot of aspects of this discussion. We want to talk about people that get left by the wayside talk about the poor and the homeless you know um there's a whole bunch of factors that go into why we are where we are so i don't know how deep we want to get but uh, real deep yeah super deep (laughs) (laughs) just for people who all the way to the pineal gland (laughs) yeah (laughs) just for people who don't know ptsd is a post-traumatic stress disorder yeah and um mdma is its common street name is ecstasy so the interesting thing about this actually is it started off as a psychiatric drug. It was actually something mm-hmm. that was being used clinically 
um, and you know, psychiatrists were kind of exploring the uh, the possibilities of this drug for uh, multiple things, actually, like depression, uh, anxiety. Um, they were even using it for like couples counseling and things like that. And um, then you know, it kind of hit the streets, and uh, people started um, well abusing it. It became a party drug essentially, and everybody right. was just like you know um, going crazy with it. So of course, once once it kind of gets a little bit out of control, then the uh, the law comes down and um, suddenly it's illegal. And there was it, when it was made illegal, I think this was in the UK actually. There was like a huge outcry among psychiatrists who were using it and finding it very beneficial. And um, we're we're saying you know please 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 don't just make this illegal across the board, um, but you know they weren't having it, and uh, lo and behold, it's illegal. Yeah, well, I think you know it's a complicated idea uh, about when and why things should be made illegal. Like, you know, and if I put my my pure tinfoil hat on, I could go totally the other way with it, and and say you know the the, the law is a, a fiction, which it actually is. But you know it's it's semantic at that point when you know when there's a, a force uh, threatening violence to enforce the law then then that's the law and all your yeah. semantics in the world aren't going to do a bit of difference yeah. um, so that's kind of I think where we stand on that yeah. but the reason I said racism at the beginning is because like um, cannabis when that was made illegal uh, Harry Enslinger who was the original uh, drug czar in the United States, uh, he was a, a virulent racist against uh, black people and Hispanic people, and they were the people who had the weed, quote unquote, you know. And so that was part of his motivation for that. He saw it as a dirty aspect of the underbelly of society, um, and so he wanted to keep society kind of pure and clean. But along with that was um, was it uh, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, who who worked uh, in conjunction with uh, the government at that time to stamp out cannabis, you know, through the law and through uh, industrial espionage and all sorts of things because it, uh, hemp was threatening the timber industry at the time, the paper oh. industry. So there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into that. But, you know, there's the other side of things where, you know, if people are starting to die from, like, a combination of fentanyl and heroin, yeah, that should be off the streets. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. there's There are lines here, I think, and that's what's kind of interesting about the well, I mean, it's pretty interesting, too, that, you know, there's this, so uh, MDMA being used as, by psychiatrists as a therapeutic drug, um, and, you know, they make it illegal because it's being abused. But it's interesting that you don't see moves like that coming from, say, oh, I don't know, the opioid epidemic or yeah. any number of uh, pharmaceutical prescription drugs that can be abused and are abused. Right. Um, Adderall. Oxycontin. Yeah. 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 Any benzos? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, it, there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and I think part of the reasoning behind it, again, here's uh, I'll borrow your tinfoil hat there, Jonathan. Okay. But um, the, the I mean MDMA, the way that they use it in therapy. So apparently, what what happens is that it, it kind of really opens people up emotionally. Um, suddenly, I mean, I don't know exactly what the the um, the, the actual kind of effects are, but it, it apparently is, it, it kind of increases empathy, um, o really opens people up kind of um, on an emotional level. But the thing is, it's kind of one of these, and, and a lot of the, the drugs that we're talking about today are, have this kind of in common, where it only needs a couple of sessions. It's not mm -hmm. the kind of drug where it's like you have to be doing it 
um, you know, every day for the rest of your life. Like it's a medication that you need to function. It's kind of like almost like an experience or, um, yeah, like a, like a sort of profound experience that kind of gives you like, you know, assists in providing some kind of revelation that then, um, you know, you, you kind of come back from it and you've had that experience and you've kind of grown as a person or you've, you know, had some kind of uh, breakthrough moment. So it's like it, it, these drugs are obviously, even if they were legal and provided by pharmaceutical companies, they're not money makers, you know. And it's yeah. like, right. do I want to, you know, give this guy a couple of doses of MDMA and have him basically re- fully recover? Or do I want to put him on like psychiatric meds for the rest of his life? And, uh, you know, get, you know, cash cow. Yeah. Benzos yeah. doesn't open up emotions on the contrary, you know, it makes people addictive. Like they come back, you know, asking for an extra prescription. They look nervous. They, it makes things worse. If anything, after a honeymoon though. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the tolerance, the tolerance building and the withdrawal on, on benzos. We should clarify, I guess, when we say benzos, benzodiazepines, like, mm-hmm. uh, Xanax is the one that I'm familiar with. I know there are quite a few baclofen, I think. Or maybe that's not. That's not. Valium? No, but is back of it is used right? to reco- recover, right? Uh, on, the, on the topic of MDMA, um, it's interesting the way that they say that it works. It, supposedly, it works in pretty much the opposite way of a, a standard antidepressant, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So while a standard antidepressant is... Well, in fact, no, it's not the opposite. <laughs> Never mind. Just forget I said that. What? What? I don't think they they exactly know how it works. They know that it interacts with serotonin in some way. Um, so, as per my understanding, it causes the neurons in the brain to almost flood with serotonin. So the the reuptake inhibitor or the reuptake transporter, whatever you want to call it, uh, that usually takes excess serotonin and and brings it back up into the neuron so it can no longer um, act in the way that it should. Uh, this blocks that. So it's essentially your neurons are releasing tons of serotonin and it's allowed to flood um, the the brain essentially. And uh, yeah, they, they, other than that, I don't think they're really sure as to how it works. And I think that, I mean, I read a couple papers on it and it seemed that the common theme among all of it was that it probably interacts with multiple different brain systems. But because it's a fairly um, fringe topic, I don't think it's received that much research. Hmm. It's not like a, 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 an antidepressant or a benzodiazepine or something. It's not something that has been particularly heavily researched. Um, hmm. But I think that's a really important point about um, what someone was saying just now. Um, about how you'd only need a few sessions to uh, to essentially sort of rewrite the problem and undo it, and it wouldn't be a, a prolonged thing. And I think that, you know, Big Pharma likes to have people on drugs for a very long period of time. Yeah. Um, and that it's used for PTSD is really interesting because um, there's, again, there's lots of theories about PTSD, but a general sort of consensus is that there is some um, uh, blockage, there's an inability to process certain memories, certain um, events, traumatic events. They, some people call it like it's stuck in the amygdala, a part of the brain where mm. the, the body almost experiences it as if it's um, right 
happening right there and then. So people with PTSD often get, uh, you know, flashbacks and nightmares and things which take them back to the traumatic experience. And their brain is unable to process that that happened in the past. It feels like it's, it's happening currently. Um, and so what's really interesting about MDMA is that it's almost as if a few sessions of taking this almost like rewrites um, the systems, the, the, the memory system. It's almost like you're forming new neural pathways. Mm. Um, and then when those pathways are formed, there's no need to go back there because you've been able to process this traumatic event, but your brain can be able to sort of determine that it happened in the past. And so you can move on with your life. And that seems to be what, what, what is coming out in the research is that people have seen amazing results yeah. just from doing a couple of sessions. It's absolutely, it's amazing that, you know, this stuff is illegal and yet it's so effective. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's important to kind of distinguish as well, you know, like people, people probably are picturing, you know, um, this kind of MDMA therapy. It's like, you know, you put on some techno music and you start dancing and it's like, wow, well, yeah, I feel a lot better. But it's really not like that. Like with the way the, the, these people are, you know, the psychiatrists are using this is to, to, to do it in a therapeutic context. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, they, they call they it given... set and setting, right? Where they, yeah, it's a very right. controlled set and setting. And they're doing talk therapy through the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if this is a tool to kind of um, help people to kind of open up, um, you know, yeah. and in the situations that they're using it in, I watched a TED talk from a, unfortunately, I can't remember his name, but he was a psychiatrist who was talking about using um, MDMA therapy. And he was talking about people who have had such traumatic experiences that they can't even talk about it like to even bring it up is is just too much for them and they they can't do it so by by doing the MDMA therapy it's kind of like suddenly they can talk about it so it's almost like a tool to bring them to a place where it they they are not I won't say comfortable enough because it probably it's probably very uncomfortable but nonetheless they are able to sort of bring up these things and talk about them and work through them so yeah, yeah it's not it's not a party it's right. like it's work. It's a breakthrough, well, think, but it's committed people on a professional setting kind of thing. It's not necessarily tourists and a visiting Costa Rica doing this for like, yeah, let's find yeah, out what's going yeah. on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Well, these are important distinctions, and I think, too, that, you know, people like to party, and if they can, they will. So I think that is the, uh, you know, where we need to be careful with a lot of this kind of stuff, and it raises the argument Um you know, at what point uh, is the law overreaching in these areas, uh, you know, to a detrimental effect to society? And when is it appropriate? And that is that is really hard because, I mean, you know, I've seen uh, in certain contexts, uh, I used to live in the city, and uh, especially what, like, ecstasy, street ecstasy does to people uh, is really bad. It's, it's on lines with meth because it's mixed with yeah. um, cleaning chemicals and all sorts of stuff. Uh, that is not so MDMA is completely different. Ecstasy is what people sell in the street after they dilute it with a bunch of other crap, and it yeah. really, really harms people. So if it's going to be out there, that's going to happen. You yeah. know what I mean? They, so we have to be, I guess, I don't know about comfortable is the right word, but at least understand the ramifications of these things. Um, yeah. You know, and I think there are, <clears throat> uh, I don't know, levels of uh, enforcement. I feel really weird talking about that because I am personally don't like the idea you know that petty laws need to be enforced by by force 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm conflicted about certain other things like, yes, murder should be illegal, right? The, the blatant, obvious ones. Um, but it's, it's kind of a philosophical discussion and it, it, it comes down to how much responsibility you give people and yeah. people can barely be responsible with their food. You know, <laughs> you give them like a magic pill that makes them feel incredible. Um, they're going to go for it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing, I think. Well, it's interesting what you guys were talking about earlier with the differences with SSRIs, right? So from the reading, I kind of gathered that they suppress the emotions, like make people yeah. kind of dull or gray yeah. or just yeah. flatlined, whereas these other sort of therapeutic black market medicines, like you were saying, one or two experiences, and they it's, it's almost like getting off the hamster wheel of your life and mm. realizing that you're not just your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, there's a really interesting story from uh, Paul Stamets, who some of our listeners might be aware of. If you're not, look him up. He's a very interesting guy, uh, S-T-A-M-E-T-S, Paul Stamets. Mm-hmm. And he has a license from the DEA to research uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and he does uh, to great effect. He's got a lot of findings, very interesting things, rewriting neural pathways, all sorts of stuff. Now, he has a story from his uh, youth that he used to have a really bad stutter to the point where it incapacitated him and he could not speak with people. And, and if you know anybody who stutters, you know that it can be really bad, and it's made worse by anxiety. So if you have anxiety on top of that, it just compounds. Um, so according to his story, he took, and this is kind of a long story, so I won't do the whole thing, but he took 20 grams, 20 dried grams of mushrooms, which uh, is a lot, a lot, yeah. uh, even more than like Terrence McKenna would advocate. Uh, so he ended up climbing up into a tree, and it happened to be during a lightning storm, and he had this incredibly terrifying experience. Um, and he said he got to the point where he realized he could stop stuttering. And so he said to himself, I will not stutter. I will not stutter over and over and over for who knows how long. He said it might have been hours. And uh, when he was done, he never stuttered again in his life. Yeah. Like literally not once. You know, so it's kind of interesting. Um, his theory is that the psilocybin allowed his intent to rewrite neural pathways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was kind of a fascinating idea. But again, yeah. You know, where and how do you apply these things? Um, it needs to have some sort of a structure. It needs to have an understanding and it needs to have the, uh, kind of stink rubbed off of it, you know, that the, that the law has given. And that's, you know, if we're being honest, that stupid people have given these things a, a bad image, you know. Well, isn't yeah. that what the MAPS, the, it's actually the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I think they're based in Massachusetts. So they're, mm-hmm investigating with really dry kind of methodical science about all these different things. I mean, PTSD Mm -hmm. and then also psilocybin for anxiety. Mm -hmm. So uh, speaking to the point you said about very few uh, sessions, the same thing with what Stamets had said is that you you use a substance to target a certain thing that you're trying to fix or cure or alter. um, And you do that very specifically. uh, And then you don't do it for frivolous things. You know, mm-hmm. and he's very against, like, in the world of psilocybin, if you say the word shroom, he gets really angry. And, you know, he's against that. He was like, this is a serious thing that we're studying. So that is an important idea, too. I mean, I, I think that that should be, uh, you know, around every other medicine that we have available. Um, you know, but some of the things are, are, are on a different level, too. Like, uh, we're talking about uh, ketamine. 
that's another very interesting one. Again, single to only a few sessions. Um, I've heard an interesting story recently about a guy who's getting treatment for depression for intramuscular ketamine or by intramuscular ketamine. So they inject it. Uh, and as you would imagine, you have quite a, you know, hallucinatory experience, but he said that coming out of that, he noticed that his depression was like significant, like, you know, 70 to 80% decreased and it lasted. And so that's kind of interesting. The ketamine therapies, I think maybe maybe that was a, a different sort of case, but it seems the the ones that I've read about, it's actually relatively low doses. Like it's not the same kind of dose that you would do like in a disco. It was hmm. more like you know, kind of um, like like the people wouldn't necessarily notice much of an effect. Like uh, maybe you know a bit a bit of kind of wooziness or that kind of sure. thing, but not. Um, and and just at, even at those doses, it seems to be having like a pretty profound effect on um, on depression. Sure. Well, what is ketamine exactly? Because all I've ever heard about it being is a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. So yeah, is it, I mean, is it an herbal? Either. Is it a herbal medicine? Is it? I mean, did it come originally from a plant and then it's synthesized? Does anyone know? I only thought that it was an anesthetic, you know, used in the operating room. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I don't know of it as being from like a botanical. I thought it was just something that they figured out in the lab one day. Uh, so apparently it was discovered in 1962. Hmm. Um, I th- it seems to be a synthetic thing that was made in the lab. Um, it was yeah, it was first used as a anesthetic. Uh, they used it in the Vietnam War. Um, but I no, I don't think it's necessarily derived from any um, any plants or anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's the you know that's where you get into too the the purists who kind of talk about things should come from directly from plants or you know is it always a negative when we distill something in a laboratory? I'm two minds on that. I don't know. I don't think chemicals are always bad. No, necessarily. You know. No, I would I wouldn't say so either. To me, it seems like um, you know, discovering something like a, a plant compound has its value. Um, discovering something by synthesis is you know has its value as well. Um, it certainly seems like there is some kind of like I don't know like there's a safety aspect to it to a certain extent. Although not really, I guess now that I think about it, I was going to say that it maybe is more safe if it's something that nature has created. But then there's plenty of things in nature that are not safe at all. <laughs> Yeah. No. <laughs> Scratch that. Don't actually, you know, remove that <laughs> compound that has side of it. <laughs> yeah, it's not black and white, yeah. but yeah, that's yeah. the point. Natural sometimes is better. Sometimes, yeah. What's the term? I can't remember. What's the term for the kind of medicines where you have like a traumatic experience on purpose? Uh, there's, uh, it's trauma something. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name now. There's like an academic term for it. Yeah. It, it creates so you, a traumatic experience? Well, no, the experience itself can be true. Kind of like um, like uh, if anybody's heard of Amanita muscaria, which is a psilocybin mushroom, but it's extremely strong and can be dangerous. Hmm. You know, So it can cause these uh, experiences. I guess what I mean is like colloquially you would call it a bad trip, right? Hmm. <laughs> um, but that there's a purpose to that in some cases for people. But I think that's less so on the medicinal side of things and more so on the... Uh, We'll call it the Terrence McKenna side of things. (laughs) 
Although honestly, I think at at a certain point, those two things kind of become the same thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you, when you talk. If we get into like the the kind of the the powerful psychedelics, so like DMT, uh, ayahuasca, LSD in some cases, psilocybin, like these things, like they do apparently have this very profound. Um, like people have a very profound experience on this. And I think that in some cases, you know, because reading a lot of different stuff, um, well, particularly reading about Ibogaine, um, mm-hmm. and, and they, they were talking about, like, how they're trying to synthesize a version that doesn't give you the kind of the psychedelic experience. So it doesn't get you high, but it's still, they're hoping that it will still have this kind of profound experience, which with the Ibogaine, it's people getting off of opioids. But, you know, you could use it with any of these other kind of psychedelics, like, you know, if you take away the the kind of psychedelic experience so you alter it in some way would it still have the same effect like and CBD to me, oil. what's that well cbd like oil CB- yeah. well yeah cbd oil sure yeah but i mean i don't know i think that in a lot of cases what what it sounds like is going on is people are having these kind of profound experiences and that is kind of the catalyst for making change in their life and yeah. getting over some kind of tra- trauma or whatever the case may be it seems like right. it seems like, like that kind of it's almost like it takes you outside of yourself to a certain extent so that you can look at things more objectively and kind of see yeah. where things are going wrong and like oh I've been acting like this or I've been obsessed with this and it's kind of like by having that experience is what is what makes it so that you you get a better perspective and can kind of re um reevaluate things and change yeah no, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense um if you look at a lot of the accounts um, of people taking these various psychedelics, it seems to be the the psychedelic experience itself mm. which brings on these profound uh, realizations. You know, in this ability, uh, just just reading some of the accounts, um, it sounds like some of the stuff that goes on is just crazy. You can't imagine it. You can't even if you have. I guess if you haven't experienced it, then it's just an intellectual thing. But there, there are people who who say that through taking things like psilocybin, they actually, uh, whatever you want to call it, whether it's their consciousness or their soul or something, that they can actually come out of their body and look at themselves from a third-person perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and likewise, they can look at everything else from, like, really impartially, um, completely disconnected from from you know individual circumstances and daily life and you know p- the personality. I mean, there was one account which was saying that their personality just felt like it completely melted away, and that they could they could suddenly see all of the things, all of the ways that they were going wrong in their life, and it was a simple choice, just seeing it objectively almost that they came back into reality and they completely switched around their life. And I think that was from an ayahuasca experience. Mm. Um, but there's so many there's so many accounts of these sorts of things that I tend yeah. toward thinking, like, like you said, Doug, I think that maybe it is the psychedelic experience, which is, um, in some cases at least, the really uh, the, the, the main aspect of this. Yeah. It's like they're kind of like from a medical perspective are thinking that that's kind of like a side effect. But and that you know, it's the substance itself has some kind of biochemical thing that happens, um, and it, and it's as simple as that, and that's the medicinal quality. But I honestly wonder if they have to be looking more at the kind of psychological aspect of it. I guess. 
Yeah, I was, uh, was going to ask uh, Gabby, uh, from your perspective, in, in the medical industry, do you just distinguish between like physical, structural medicines and psychiatric medicines, or is there not really those distinctions? Oh, I think we might have lost Gabby for a second. Anyway, do you guys know about oh, that? Oh, I'm here. Sorry. I just oh. thought I turned off my <laughs> mic. And that's... No, no problem. <laughs> um... I think I'm not sure what you're referring to. Like, I guess I mean like there's medicines that treat physical conditions like reduce inflammation, you know, or yeah. uh, relax muscles, things like that. And then there's, you know, SSRIs, which you know, technically are biological because it's dealing with hormones, but um, it's kind of more on the psychiatric mm -hmm. side of things. Do they distinguish psychiatric drugs? Oh, yeah. yeah, we can hear you. Oh, yeah, you. we yeah, can, we hear, can you. hear you. Okay, sorry. I didn't hear a few parts, but yeah, no, I oh. understand. Um, in general, in big pharma, there's not necessarily such a big distinction, but people like a folk wisdom, so to speak, they will make the distinction. Like mm -hmm. some, some people will actually not think that you're taking drugs. I'm just taking these relaxant tranquilizer and they think it is a pretty like mild thing. Others, you know, have it more clear, but they know that, yeah. That medication doesn't really count for like a serious disease or a chronic disease like high blood pressure because mm. that just makes me sleep kind of thing, you know. Mm. 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 Sure. Yo, know, I think there's a reticence in, I mean, I would imagine anyway that there's a reticence in the, in the medical community to give credence to the psychedelic experience and any benefits it might have because it does start to meld those two worlds, uh, the mm. spiritual world and, the, and I guess the physical world, if you, for lack of a better term. But I think yeah. that that is, uh, that's also very dangerous because, you know, I've known people who have burned themselves out. There used to be a guy in our town we called Acid Andy. He did too much acid and he just wandered around. I think every town has one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but, it, and not only that, I mean, aside from, you know, you can break your, your mind. Uh, you you can open yourself up to uh, you know spiritual intrusion and whatever you might you know to our listeners whatever you might believe about that or that world or however it works you know I'm not trying to make any. Uh, Elliot I don't know was telling us about ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So yeah, we're not entirely sure where it cut off, but Doug mentioned about Timothy Leary and about how uh, he was irresponsible in basically saying that everyone should oh, go out and try this stuff and how there's a certain degree of responsibility that needs to be taken when um, approaching something like this, I would imagine. Uh, and I simply said that this seems to be the way that all um, the traditional cultures tended to look at this, this thing as well. So you look at various um, the indigenous the indigenous tribes, say Amazon, who use ayahuasca, um, or various others who've used peyote, and there's a couple other plants that have sort of psychedelic properties, including various mushrooms and things. Um, from what I understand, these they they were very set specific rituals, and this was not something to be messed around with. Um, for one, I believe that if someone was going to be taking ayahuasca, it would be part of almost like um, a rite of passage, uh, a certain indicating like a certain degree of in, um, responsibility and um, maturity. 
mm. and it would be used as a tool and there would also be a shaman involved so mm -hmm. someone who kind of knows what they're doing mm. and and so the problem seems to be that the west people in the west have been really irresponsible with this yeah and they don't see it as a tool they use it as a recreational form of escapism and this brings with it all sorts of problems because this was never the way that people really tended to use these things yeah yeah i mean it's not a toy right like i mean these things should be taken rather seriously and um yeah. if they have therapeutic value then by all means they should be used therapeutically but it they're not yeah they're not a toy if anything in tribes it was used for a total different purpose like to take responsibility as an initiation from boyhood to adulthood mm -hmm. that yeah. was very serious you know it's not was not recreational no no yeah, rite of passage, probably with a lot of ceremony before and after as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think where we are now in our society, that it's inevitable that we're going to have some collateral damage in in trying to research and learn about and understand substances that the ancient civilizations might have used in that way. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we have so many people now. I don't even know if that's possible is what I'm saying. What, what do you mean like, like collateral damage use? in that yeah no i mean not in wide scale use but just in that people are going to abuse it in abuse is what i mean well um, okay but you know at, if it's available but it i guess you know as pharmaceuticals it, right like i mean right. like we were talking about before it's like you know op opioid addiction and things like that like yes there totally. are medical medicines out there that are are used um you know for the prescriptive purposes but then they get abused yeah. So I mean, yeah, I mean, the, there is potential, absolutely, for that to happen with these um, other drugs. But uh, I, I have to wonder if the collateral damage from you know somebody who's abusing MDMA is going to be anywhere near what it is from abusing opioids. Right. Sure. But that, I guess that's what my point is. Like when you get down to if somebody is in a place where they find themselves abusing MDMA, it's probably diluted. You know, it's probably stomped on, and that's where I guess I'm talking about the black market. So right, uh, right. I understand the same thing exists with uh, with pharmaceuticals. So, but it, I think there are cases in some of these substances like um, kratom, which we have talked about before. Kratom, kratom. Mm -hmm. I know the pronunciation is disputed, but it's a uh, uh, it's a plant from uh, I think Vietnam. Uh, it has Southeast a very Asia. Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. It has a very similar effect uh, to opiates, uh, but it uh, it won't kill you essentially. Um, but it does have uh, withdrawal. Uh, it does have addictive tendencies. Um, so there's a big debate going on right now about that. And the, the DEA put it on or threatened to put it on Schedule 1. And then there was a huge backlash because a lot of people are using it for uh, recovery to get off opiates or benzodiazepines or even things like alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's where it's like, <clears throat> yes, it's still addictive. Uh, you know, no bones about it. It's physically addictive. If you take, if you get onto a regimen of it and then you stop, you get the sweats, you get sick, but it won't kill you. So, you know, objectively, it's better than opiates. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where I find this like gray line, you know, about what do you recommend to people and when and how is it appropriate and stuff. But I, I think anything that, that is not lethal that gets you off something that's lethal is a good first step, right? Yeah. And then you can kind of taper from there. Yeah. yeah. I would agree. Yeah. 
So well, it's you know. kind of like the coca plant is a good example too. Like I think it's in the Andes where it's just used by people to deal with altitude, right? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. they chew it, and you know it's a part of everyday life. But then you have it's, in the U.S. or the West the whole cocaine issue, which is abused and not used. I mean, for positive purposes, I would assume. I, I'm not yes. sure, but I think cocaine is used in hospitals for some applications. Um, Local anesthetic sometimes. Right. You know. Yeah. Mm. I didn't but uh, but in but in the U.S., it's looked at as a recreational drug, essentially. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't it? It's kind of an interesting uh, um, archetype if you look at it from a broader view. Like our modern society is taking everything that was beneficial, extracting the essence of it, and just turning it up to eleven and using it as hard as possible. Yeah, it seems to be the case with most things. Yeah, even alcohol, somewhat. You know? Yeah, uh, and I. I wouldn't necessarily attribute this to just modern times. It seems like people have abused that uh, for a very long time. But um, but again, there are some interesting properties to certain types of alcohols, and they can be used in many different ways. Uh, and it seems to be a general rule that when you when you abuse something, then there's always negative consequences of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting with alcohol. I was watching a video that was like, I think it was probably from like the 1950s or so. And there was a, a reporter on the street and he was just kind of like, it was like a fluff piece. And he was just going around, oh, uh, how do you deal with the flu when you have the flu? And all these people were talking about, you know, it was a time, you know, when the, before flu shots and all this kind of stuff. So people all had these different kind of remedies that had kind of been passed down. And like, I swear to God, about 75 to 80% of them involve booze in some way. Like, you know, oh, a shot of whiskey and, you know, tie a sock around your neck or like all, all these other kinds of crazy ones. But it, yeah. inevitably, most of them involve booze. And now it's like, well, how do you deal with the flu? Well, I get the vaccine, so I don't, uh, I, you know, so I won't get it. I don't drink. Yeah. Yeah. My uncle says a similar thing every time the flu comes up. Hot toddies is the way to go. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I was say. Yeah. That's whiskey, yeah. right? With yeah. Cooked yeah. or boiled or something. Yeah. They put clove the, in it and some other stuff. Lemon mm. juice. The difference is now, I think, is that people take preventative measures. Mm. So, so they drink all year <laughs> round to prevent the flu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then kill your immune system and get the flu anyway. <laughs> yeah. We wish it would be for, you know, preventive measures. It's more like a hedonistic, you know, yeah. malaise. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that seems to be But it it's also down. abused to take off the edge. Like, you know, the the you go to a club and you're afraid to dance. You have a few drinks. It, it mm. releases inhibitions. You know what I mean? But that's okay. It's totally okay as long as you're 21. <laughs> yeah, I like the European model personally, where uh, you know you learn to drink earlier, uh, and it, it seems to. Uh, I, I think, I guess I don't know. I don't have any statistics around this, but I think personally that that actually works better. Um, when I was there for school, the family I lived with, their kids drank wine at dinner, and it was no big deal. They were like seventeen, you know. And I I would imagine that those children now being grown have a healthier attitude towards alcohol than somebody who would have been forbidden from touching it. Yeah, I think yeah, that's probably sense, true. Yeah. Like yeah. in Europe, you can get, you know, it's normal if you drink wine or beer, even in the hospital at dinner, you know, 
it's normal. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can find it in McDonald's. You know? <laughs> yeah. So like, it's, it's, Sorry, oh, I was just going to add to that, Jonathan. It seems to be the case uh, in the UK. We have we're sort of renowned internationally for booze binging. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad in the UK. In a city, if you go out at night, you'll see all sorts of people sprawled on the floor, puking up and stuff. And that's generally because because they there's a lot of people who, as soon as they reach um, you at the age where they go to university, they've never drunk before. And so they go out and they completely abuse it and make themselves really ill. And and I think that's generally because we're very um, we're very sort of conservative about children uh, trying different things in the UK. You know, trying alcohol, uh, it's frowned upon basically. And so I think that contributes toward that. But I think that this probably could maybe also account for some of the cases of such abuse when it comes to these recreate or so-called recreational drugs anyway as well um because you know i i guess we don't know because this hasn't happened but say if something like mdma was legal it was never legalized and it was known as a psychiatric medication um perhaps it would just be accepted as a psychiatric medication that you only took when you had a psychiatric illness for many people mm-hmm. of course there would always be people who abused it but um maybe it wouldn't be such a you know because w- when something is illegal you know you go through a rebellious phase in your life as i'm sure most people do um they naturally want to do things that they're told not to do or that they're not allowed to do and so this right. so i think that this probably creates a drive on the part of many people just to do That's it a good point just it's because like- it's not allowed yeah, it's mm-hmm. like don't press the red button. There you go. Yeah. Like by the yeah. way, British, you know, British tourists—they have a very bad fame in Spain. You know, they just yeah. go come and do this binge alcohol. And mm-hmm. in Spain, the approach is a little bit different. Like they have festivals each year, which it's like a Babylonian party. Everything it's allowed, you know. But they misbehave those days, and later they leave a relatively better balanced life. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, when I was there, uh, we were in uh, San Sebastian for two days, and uh, I thought that was very interesting. Like, we ate dinner at, like, 11 o'clock at night and then went out, and it was, like, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, and the streets were full. I know. It's crazy. Yeah, when I first came crazy. here to Spain, you know, dinner was, like, at 10. You know, at 10, I was going to bed already. Then yeah. at midnight, I said, okay, let's go party. What? <laughs> yeah. You guys are crazy. <laughs> And then you so, get a siesta the next day, right? You have two yeah. hours at lunchtime <laughs> yeah, to take partly, a nap. Apparently <laughs> they say that's because cortisol takes a dip at that time, so <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> to have a siesta yeah. at that time. <laughs> well, I wanted to shift gears slightly. Uh, I was thinking along the, the lines of uh, this whole dilemma, you know, about illicit substances and their 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 usage and what, you know, what illicit means. Um uh, is uh, forbidden by law, rules, or custom. So that's a pretty broad definition, right? <clears throat> a lot of different things could be illicit. But I'm curious about the uh, the moral aspect to this and how you guys feel like from a philosophical, I guess, perspective. Um, say, if I propose, that, like, for instance, would you begrudge someone the opportunity to commit suicide if they so chose to do so? 
you know, I know that that's very extreme, but that would be my question. Like, because in my mind, people have a right, you know, to do what they want with themselves as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Now, obviously suicide is very harmful to families emotionally and psychologically, you know, um, but I think that that choice is, is with every person. And so then you, at least in my mind, you have to take that forward to, would you begrudge someone the chance to put a needle in their arm? However distasteful you think it might be, mm. you know, if they are at home by themselves, not driving, not harming anyone, whether or not they are harming themselves extremely, um, it, it's kind of like you're bound to respect their free will in that regard. And so that's where I think the dilemma about the law becomes interesting. Um, it's my personal opinion that a lot of these substances should be decriminalized to the extent that if somebody gets caught with them and they are not in a situation where they're putting anyone in danger, then that should be let go. Now, of course, you should give them options, say, hey, you know, here's counselors, here's rehab, it's all set, um, you know, because we need to help that aspect of our society. I know a lot of people disagree with that, but I think that's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's certain there, there has to be caveats there i think yeah. like even with the suicide argument i think that um there's a difference between somebody who's um you know experiencing chronic pain or they're at the end of their life and no longer kind of want to go go on then yeah you know i think that that in the, that situation obviously it's it's kind of uh it you know it's it's merciful basically to yeah. allow them to do that versus you know uh, a teenager who's going through a really rough patch and uh wants to end right. it all you sure. know, I think that, you know, in those situations, I think counseling would probably be a lot better. Mm. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's the, it's the same thing with the drugs. I mean, if you if you put the caveat there that they're not hurting anyone else. OK, then, yeah, I, I would agree. But I think that that's a very difficult thing to kind of define and, and determine. It is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because it's contextual, right? It's in each, you know, you don't know. Somebody might be, you know, uh, high at the end of a. You know, having shot up in their apartment and then they decide to go out and then they get in the car and they kill somebody yeah and you know while they were in the house they were fine so it is yeah i understand you can't predict that yeah um i mean the most blatant example is people who are in prison for possession of marijuana i think that to me is the most yeah. blatant example yeah you know but um i think there's a line somewhere like uh the netherlands have an interesting model and i think that they've shown that they've reduced, um, if you look specifically at crime, they've reduced crime by decriminalizing even hard drugs. Mm. Uh, so there's an interesting thing there, but it requires some moral uh, flexibility, I guess, or the ability to uh, to give some leeway to people who you may just you know not agree with or even despise. You know, mm. you know, a lot of people refer to addicts as like those people, you know, those junkies, those down and out, like you know, the dirtbags. Um, that image exists, but a, a vast portion of the population of addicted people are in pain and they are there not by their own doing. Um, not entirely, not, not a slave to circumstance, but you know, also not a hundred percent their choice either. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I think that we should do that in the United States, but we have so many people, we have so much crime, uh, you know, we already have so much abuse. Um, I mean, just today in the local news here where I live in, I'm in a rural area, people are finding heroin needles on the side of the road. And, uh, you know, there are babies being born in, in Michigan who are deformed uh, due to prescription opiate usage of their mm -hmm. mothers. 
you know, uh, so there's a huge problem with all sorts of damaging substances all over the place. Um, I guess I wish if I'm being like totally blunt about it and not filtering my words at all, I just wish people would want to take care of themselves more, you know, but this kind of a wishy-washy thing to say. So, no, I mean, it's, it's true. And it's funny because I mean, I of, think, Oh, go on, Doug. I was just going to say, cause speaking of crime, um, there was an article uh, on SOT um, last year, not quite a year ago, and it was uh, the headline was "Psychedelics More Effective at Reducing Crime Than Police." Says new study. Wow. <laughs> so. Well, one of our chatters makes an interesting point here. It said uh, when countries make it so addicts can go someplace legal to safely administer what they are addicted to, it provides an environment that is much easier to choose recovery from. Mm. I think that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's interesting in the U.S. too, because like needle exchange programs are trying that model that other countries mm -hmm. have had work successfully is really not supported. You mm -hmm. know, people don't want that in their neighborhood or it, it's an ongoing raging debate about, you know, do we just not acknowledge it and we just let it continue or do we try and as the chatter was saying, find a way to get these people safe environments to maintain their addiction. I'm speaking specifically of heroin and, um, you know, get them the services that they need. Because right now in the U.S., things like methadone and Suboxone are more expensive than heroin is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I heard recently someone say that uh in detroit in in michigan in the united states that heroin is uh is as much or cheaper than a six pack of beer for like a half gram mm -hmm. of heroin wow i didn't use so that. yeah <clears throat> so and you know it's now i think people are tangentially aware that it's making its way into the uh into the suburbs you know it's no longer kind of like a a, a ghetto like a heroin shack drug you know like all classes so to speak, are using this drug. And um, I think that's directly related to the uh, to the opioid ep epidemic. You know, people get prescriptions, they get addicted, the pain stays, but the drug goes and you have to get more. And then you're going to look for something that's similar. I think it's a, it's a really messy situation and it's highly nuanced. So it's difficult to make any sort of um, concrete statements about how we should proceed. Yeah, um, yeah. But... The way I tend to look at it is by considering things like crime and the, the driving factors behind certain crimes. And I'm not saying all crime is related to this, but I think that there is probably a significant chunk of crimes which are um, committed by drug addicts to fuel their drug addiction. And if you were to somehow... Cause Okay, if we look at all of the negative consequences of drug addicts um, or of, you know, large swathes of the population being addicted to drugs like heroin or cocaine, really one of the, the most costly things on society is the crime that those addicts commit to get their fix. And so I would imagine that if there was some kind of policy or some way of dealing with this, Say, I mean, it's far-fetched, but say if there were, I guess, like something similar to what the chatter just mentioned about maybe 
providing these addicts with a source of their heroin which was untainted and you know where they could legally shoot up and stuff um then maybe if they had easier access to that they may not be driven to um to go and commit a crime to go rob an old lady on the street or to hold up a uh hold up a shop and shoot a couple people and steal a couple hundred dollars out of the cash register uh, yeah. At least if they could have access to their drugs, do what they need to do, and then uh, access to the support from that base, then maybe that would be um, more beneficial. And what one of the things, I guess one of the arguments against that is, okay, that someone might say, okay, so if you made these drugs sort of freely av available from government health sources, then you'd have a bunch load of addicts or a bunch load of people who weren't initially addicts who just wanted to get high and the drug rates uh, would spike. But if you look at somewhere like the Netherlands uh, or Amsterdam specifically, now I don't know about the statistics about this, but I know several people who've been there. And the impression that I got was that the majority of the drug use was actually tourists, um, people going there to get high because it was legal. But um, in terms of drug-related crime, um, I can't be sure about this, but I vaguely remember coming across statistics which said that it's fairly quite low. Um, <laughs> and I think that's interesting because their model is completely different to most other places in the West where we criminalize it. Like you were saying, Jonathan, before, when it's criminalized, um, that's when things go underground and that's where things get really messy. Mm. Well, yeah, that's I mean, we're we're seeing that problem in uh, Michigan right now with the uh, there's in, I don't know if anybody's aware of this. I mean, I, people are aware of what's happening in the States with with uh, cannabis, but um, there's a lot of, I've been kind of following the discussion in the legislature in Michigan, and they're talking about how if they raise the prices, if they tax it too much, which is the point, we're going to legalize it, you know, recreationally, then we're going to tax it. That'll be fine for everybody. You're all responsible adults. Let's move forward. But they realize if they tax it too high, <clears throat> they're just going to create a new black market because nobody's going to spend that much money. Um, so it is kind of a matter of the government, like understanding what the people want and then trying to find a way to make that, you know, smooth, I guess, somehow. Um, now it's easier to talk about in a case with substances like cannabis, because it's obviously in kind of a different realm than, than heroin. Um, so, you know, it's, but I think the model where you give people that choice, you understand that there's an element, a certain percentage that is going to fall to the wayside and that's going to happen in humanity, no matter what but you can give people who are looking for options, those options, instead of letting them overdose in the back of an abandoned building somewhere. And that, uh, you know, there was a, a Vice documentary on fentanyl in Canada that was on HBO or one of the Vice News segments that they did. And uh, the, the one of the subjects of this bit was a, a young man who was addicted to fentanyl and he was trying really hard to find a recovery option because he, he's like, I need a place to go where I can get some help and, you know, I can wean off this and do something. Um, but he couldn't find it, couldn't find it. He was traveling all around. He was catching rides to other cities and finally hooked up with a psychiatrist who was like, okay, we'll bring you in. We have this facility. But that's just one story. You know, there's a guy who found himself in a place that was damaging, wants to get better, but doesn't have the power to do so and has no help at all. And there are millions of people like that. Um, 
So, you know, I think that's where the, the work of da Dr. Gaber Mate has been eye opening for a lot yeah. of people. Um, he wrote that book in the realm of hungry ghosts and talking about the underlying nature of why addicts are what they are. And he had the distinction of being able to work in an environment in Vancouver where he wasn't trying to get addicts clean, he was just treating their medical ailments and just listening to them. You know, and so mm -hmm. having this compassion and not like you were saying, labeling them as junkies or derelicts or whatever, but trying to get to more of the root cause of the addiction. And I think in America, it's not dealt with that way. You know, totally. I think now they're trying to say it's, you know, it's a genetic disease or it's a medical disease, which just means another pharma drug. Instead of yeah. trying to get to the root of the suffering. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, you could say in a way that the addictive tendencies are a, for a sort of disease of the mind, you know, but it is based off pain. And I really like that phrase that Gabor Mate says. He says he doesn't ask people why the addiction. He says, why the pain? And let's talk about that because that's where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, I also like what he said about <clears throat> uh, the word addict. Like he said on a couple of occasions that I've heard him speak that he doesn't like that word. He likes to say, you are not an addict. You are in a state of being addicted, which is much different. And when you self-identify as an addict, you know, it creates all of these other uh, realms of uh, confusion about your own worth and like, you know, where you are in the world and things like that. Um, now, there are some people who benefit from that. I've known people who are in uh, AA for 30 years. And they're like, yes, I'm an alcoholic. I always have been and I'll die as one, you know, but I'm sober today. And I'm like, that's that's cool. That's working for you. But there are other people who, when they get that idea in their mind, it in itself becomes a form of mental illness to the point where they can no longer escape that image of themselves, even though it may not be true. You know, so it's. Uh, yeah. And, it's, and he is he is experimenting and talking about ayahuasca for addiction. And he's received some negative backlash as a result. Mm -hmm. But uh he makes a point, and there's an article on Sod, if our listeners want to read it. It talks about ayahuasca, the power of a plant from the Amazon, and it's the respect it demands. And it's written by him about, you know, this ceremonial setting and experience guidance and, you know, having people, as we said earlier in the show, kind of take themselves out of that mindset for a moment and deal with the pain, as you were saying, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's what we're working towards is a, a better understanding of mental health. I think that, you know, that in and of itself might help what we call the drug problem. Mm. Right? That, you know, I, I would hypothesize you could even say the drug problem is a mental health problem. Yeah. But it's hard to say because a lot of drugs are physically addictive too, you know, where it's like you may try it under peer pressure or something like that. Uh, so it's it's hard to say. Well, I think <clears throat> excuse me. I think one of the issues with um, with what we're talking about here is that um, the drugs that are kind of being studied for therapeutic purposes um, tend to get lumped in with you know because they're all illegal, right? So drugs right. are bad. You know, just the umbrella term drugs, they're all bad. So it's like when people are talking about you know legalizing um, MDMA for therapy purposes or psilocybin or DMT or whatever. Um, People are picturing heroin addicts, 
and crack addicts and things like that, like wandering the streets. And it's like, no, that's a terrible idea. We shouldn't do that. Those things aren't therapeutic. They're just addictive. Whereas yeah. these ones that they're studying for, for therapy purposes really aren't. They don't fit in that same category. It's like we were right. talking about. People are using these therapeutically like, you know, two, three times or something like that, and then they're done. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't have this kind of situation of people wandering the streets committing crimes to try and get more of this stuff. It's really used in a, in a therapeutic session yeah. um, setting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think because of the, the stigma that has kind of been applied to all drugs, you end up with this, like, there's no nuance in there. So I think that that's part of the the issue that's going on. And I think it's good that we have kind of these psychiatrists um, and other doctors, uh, researchers who are kind of looking at these things individually and saying, no, we need to study this. We need to find out more about this because there, there's something here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you really only need to look at the, uh, the definition of Schedule 1 to understand that they're confused at the highest levels. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like heroin and cannabis are both Schedule One, and it's defined as a as a substance with no medicinal application, which is ridiculous because obviously I think everybody knows that the cannabis is a is a medicine and can be used that way by many people, and that uh, opium or op, you know opiates heroin is the basis for most of the therapeutic medicines that are used in the hospital system these days. So and yet it's you know heroin itself is Schedule One, so it's like you know. The definitions, the back and forth, um, you know, where they're going to move things from schedule to schedule. I mean, it really is a, a, a power play. Um, so, you know, there's something to be said for, I think, a governing body, which has the people's best interests at mind or at, at heart. But uh, we don't have that right now, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just throw on that tin for your hat i think doug had it last <laughs> i've just it's on now <laughs> uh i'm just gonna yeah throw out some thoughts on um a couple things i think there's some resistance against um the decriminalization and sort of widespread acknowledgement of the medicinal benefits of certain drugs and things like that um I think it was mentioned earlier on the show <clears throat> about someone being put in prison for a couple of years just because they were caught with cannabis. Um, and I I think when you look at the prison system in the US, um, there is a, a private aspect to that and there are um, profits that can be made um, by maintaining... Uh, a high level of occupants in the prison. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so it, it would kind of make sense that maybe there were some individuals at some level who were profiting from the incarceration of individuals um, to want to keep laws tight on drugs because, I, you know, the statistics show that many people who are incarcerated in those places have just been caught with drugs yeah and so it's an easy way to sort of maintain a constant flow of prison inmates um and i think workforce yeah Yeah. basically the wolf you know that's a topic of a whole other show but that whole system is is 
really um, corrupt. <laughs> and so there's that. But then there's also the black market, the black market for heroin and cocaine and things. And it's like if you start to question, okay, how does that heroin and cocaine get into the U.S. to start with? Um, well, there's also interests to make money off that as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so if it was to be decriminalized, then perhaps the black market would um, sort of fail and there would be people who were not making money off importing heroin and cocaine into the US. And some have said that you know, there's high-level sort of government officials and perhaps secret service agencies who you know, who actively participate in the importation of these kinds of drugs. Um, and so I would imagine that there may be some resistance from those bodies. Yeah, well, well, I'm going to take uh, that tinfoil hat and add to it. <laughs> okay. um, just look at like Oxycontin as an example, right? So Purdue mm. Pharmaceuticals, they've been, uh, it's known now that they knew it was addictive that, you know, years before it it has started to come up now that people have issues with it you don't see those guys in jail you don't see nope. any sort of backlash or even you know federal prison nice prisons but you'd see i think right now in the u.s it's over seven hundred thousand people are in jail for cannabis some sort of cannabis so mm -hmm. That's my theory on that, that, you know, the, the big pharma, the money making for those things like Oxycontin, they, they essentially get away with it for whatever yeah. reason. There's same no old, same old. <laughs> yep. a, a granny commits tax fraud or she was trying to be sincere about it. There was a story about that in, here in Spain. She was trying to just report that she was teaching somebody how to sue on her free time or whatever. And they like penalized her and she had to pay thousands. And a corrupt politician, you know, gets away with everything. You know? Yeah. They penalize the working force. Yep. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I guess I'll take the tinfoil hat this time <laughs> around. <laughs> um, that, you know, the government agencies importing uh, drugs is well proven. Uh, the CIA's trafficked in heroin. They distributed crack into the inner city. This is all documented and written down. Um, so that's almost like kind of a no-brainer or a, a non-starter at this point. Like, but there's still a lot of people that don't know that, even though it's been released and actually declassified. They came on and said, "Yeah, we did it." <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but do they admit it's still like? Has it been declassified that it's still going on, or do they try to not necessarily that know yeah. that it did that it did right. at one point? Rogue agents, right? You know, not our fault. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Bad um, apples. Yeah, but uh, what I find interesting is the uh, the pharmaceutical companies and their kind of uh, intrusion in their this stratospheric wealth that they have. I mean, they are on par with, if not uh, perhaps even more uh, liquid than the oil companies are. Um, and if you look, now this is so, I've got the tinfoil hat on, this is not necessarily proven, but uh, Eli Lilly, the uh, pharmaceutical company uh, originally manufactured uh, LSD. Now, I know that it came from a lab, I think, in Switzerland originally, originally. But in the yeah, United Sandoz States... Yeah, Sandoz Labs, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, but Eli Lilly manufactured it uh, here, and they are they were the ones who first released Prozac and Cymbalta and a number of other um, SSRIs. Right? Prozac is an SSRI? 
Yeah. I hope I'm nice. right about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, the connection that a lot of people make in the kind of tinfoil hat world is uh, that Eli Lilly found, you know, inclusion with whoever else. I don't know. That uh, that LSD gives people this incredible experience and this, this psychedelic experience has something in it that is uh, counter to what we want in society. And so we're going to manufacture, you know, extract from the experiments that we've done with LSD, the ability to uh, inhibit the the reuptake of serotonin and resulting in SSRIs. So that the quote unquote medical benefits, which is a loose term of LSD were extracted without an understanding what their long-term detrimental side effects would be, mm-hmm. you know, but it, that, that is actually what happened. The fact that they, that they did that and they manufactured Prozac. But um, I think the connection is that they were, the, the tinfoil hat connection is that they were trying to, you know, suppress the use of LSD. Um, uh, but, the, you know, who knows? <laughs> A lot of those things are not proven and there's no, <laughs> there's no good information about it. So you can kind of speculate if you want. I think uh, more, more nefarious than that. And to that point is probably where a lot of people get distracted because that sounds like a kind of a fascinating story, right? But even more fascinating and dark is, is what has actually gone on. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there were uh, people, I need to track this down, but in that, when they declassified the bit about crack, um, I remember hearing a testimony of a guy who said, yeah, like this was the point. Like we brought crack into the city to keep, you know, the people in the ghetto. Um, and uh, I got to find that. So I'm, I'm not claiming that as a quote. Uh, <clears throat> but back to the point of like the overarching power structure controlling the, the people and kind of keeping them down in a certain way using these substances like we talk about. So you, you were mentioning there's this sort of class of drugs that have this very, very little usage, uh, high potential, low usage, right, for a few sessions and they work and mm-hmm. we should study those things. There are other things that are extremely toxic and damaging and don't have a medicinal application like crack cocaine, mm-hmm. you know, or methamphetamine, which destroys your body and your mind and everything else. <clears throat> um, so if you can keep those separated, and you can keep these highly addictive, highly toxic substances in the black market. You already know the black market's going to thrive. If you create it, it'll thrive. Uh, so it, looking at like kind of from the perspective of a, a power player, I guess it makes a lot of sense. Um, but who knows? Because I always come back to that idea that it's really not that uh, calculated and everything's just kind of chaotic and psychopaths will take advantage where they can. And that's just kind of how it goes. Hmm. So I don't know. I guess I don't really have a good point there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, You're keeping us down, man. <laughs> Should we go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment here? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is, how do animals experience pain? Humans know the surprising prick of a needle, the searing pain of a stubbed toe, and the throbbing of a toothache. We can identify many types of pain and have multiple ways of treating it. But what about other species? How do the animals all around us experience pain? Listen to the following recording and find out. 
Have a great weekend and goodbye. Humans know the surprising prick of a needle, the searing pain of a stubbed toe, and the throbbing of a toothache. We can identify many types of pain and have multiple ways of treating it. But what about other species? How do the animals all around us experience pain? It's important that we find out. We keep animals as pets, they enrich our environment, we farm many species for food, and we use them in experiments to advance science and human health. Animals are clearly important to us, so it's equally important that we avoid causing them unnecessary pain. For animals that are similar to us, like mammals, it's often obvious when they're hurting. But there's a lot that isn't obvious, like whether pain relievers that work on us also help them. And the more different an animal is from us, the harder it is to understand their experience. How do you tell whether a shrimp is in pain? A snake? A snail? In vertebrates, including humans, pain can be split into two distinct processes. In the first, nerves in the skin sense something harmful and communicate that information to the spinal cord. There, motor neurons activate movements that make us rapidly jerk away from the threat. This is the physical recognition of harm, called nociception. And nearly all animals, even those with very simple nervous systems, experience it. Without this ability, animals would be unable to avoid harm, and their survival would be threatened. The second part is the conscious recognition of harm. In humans, this occurs when the sensory neurons in our skin make a second round of connections via the spinal cord to the brain. There, millions of neurons in multiple regions create the sensations of pain. For us, this is a very complex experience associated with emotions like fear, panic, and stress, which we can communicate to others. But it's harder to know exactly how animals experience this part of the process, because most of them can't show us what they feel. However, we get clues from observing how animals behave. Wild, hurt animals are known to nurse their wounds, make noises to show their distress, and become reclusive. In the lab, scientists have discovered that animals like chickens and rats will self-administer pain-reducing drugs if they're hurting. Animals also avoid situations where they've been hurt before, which suggests awareness of threats. We've reached the point that research has made us so sure that vertebrates recognize pain that it's illegal in many countries to needlessly harm these animals. But what about other types of animals, like invertebrates? These animals aren't legally protected, partly because their behaviors are harder to read. We can make good guesses about some of them, like oysters, worms, and jellyfish. These are examples of animals that either lack a brain or have a very simple one. So an oyster may recoil when squirted with lemon juice, for instance, because of nociception. But with such a simple nervous system, it's unlikely to experience the conscious part of pain. Other invertebrate animals are more complicated, though, like the octopus, which has a sophisticated brain and is thought to be one of the most intelligent invertebrate animals. Yet, in many countries, people continue the practice of eating live octopus. We also boil live crayfish, shrimp, and crabs, even though we don't really know how they're affected either. This poses an ethical problem, because we may be causing these animals unnecessary suffering. Scientific experimentation, though controversial, gives us some clues. 
Tests on hermit crabs show that they'll leave an undesirable shell if they're zapped with electricity, but stay if it's a good shell. An octopi that might originally curl up an injured arm to protect it will risk using it to catch prey. That suggests that these animals make value judgments around sensory input instead of just reacting reflexively to harm. Meanwhile, crabs have been known to repeatedly rub a spot on their bodies where they've received an electric shock. And even sea slugs flinch when they know they're about to receive a noxious stimulus. That means they have some memory of physical sensations. We still have a lot to learn about animal pain. As our knowledge grows, it may one day allow us to live in a world where we don't cause pain needlessly. Pain-free goats? <laughs> for sure. You go, that one was for the vegans. <laughs> oh, thank you, Zoya. Um, yeah, I, I was curious about the uh, the lobster thing because I've I've heard that about fish in the past that uh, they don't have nerves in their uh, lips, uh, so that when you hook a fish, it's not actually hurting; it's just trying to get away from you. Yeah. I don't know how true that is. They really seem like they're. <laughs> Remember what they say about babies not having pain. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you want to smack your babies around. <laughs> Don't do that, anyway. by the way. Yeah, please. <laughs> please don't. Um, so, uh, to our show, I mean, it's such a huge topic, really. So, I mean, we, we kind of talked about what we can, but we could really talk for hours about this and all the ramifications. I wanted to make this point that each of these substances, all the way from cannabis to heroin to kratom and, you know, uh, even things like... Uh, you know, Fenibut and, and uh, there are artificial compounds that people are using for, you know, working out uh, and weight gain and stuff. Uh, all this stuff that results in a uh, some sort of an application that could be medicinal. Um, they're each like a huge world in and of itself. And I think it's very important to not make uh, snap judgments and also to not um, only kind of skim the surface. Like if you want to understand something, you know, please don't misinterpret me. I'm not encouraging people to use these substances. I'm saying like, if you're going to understand it, try to be open-minded and look at people, you know, uh, people who may or may not be addicted and also people who may or may not be on the war path, like Jeff Sessions, you know, all these people, we're all just kind of like confused and working our way through life the best we can, I think. And, and, and when it comes down to uh, enforcing sort of a safe society, however that works, like we need to have compassion in there too. So that's what I would urge. Um, so when you think about drugs and you think about medicine, I think try to come from a, a place of compassion rather than a place of judgment. <clears throat> so that's my concluder. Good one. Yeah. Good one, yeah. I like All right. Well, we'll wrap it up for today then. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, be sure to check out the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time, and we will be back next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.